Before today's episode, I wanted to include a quick programming note to our audience. I know it's been a little over a month since we released our last episode, and there's good reason for that. My wife and I just welcomed our first child at the beginning of August, so with running Cohen and helping on the home front, the work to put out great episodes has been on the back burner. We are getting back into the swing of things here, and you can start expecting more consistent weekly and bi-weekly releases moving forward, with more exciting guests on the way. Now, with that out of the way, excited to introduce today's guest, Craig Pratt. I was introduced to Craig by Kevin Haverty, who was the CRO of ServiceNow and was in our first episode. If you haven't heard that episode, I highly recommend going back. Craig is currently the VP of Product Line Growth at Arctic Wolf. He started his career as a golf pro, finding his way into technology through roles at places like CompuWare and EMC. In 2011, he joined ServiceNow, serving in leadership roles for nine years, including Worldwide Vice President of Sales Initiatives. When we recorded this podcast, Craig was running Next Level Leader, an advisory business that helps early stage companies develop and optimize their growth strategies. And since then, he's returned to a sales leadership role at Arctic Wolf, a leading cybersecurity company who's been included in CNBC's Disruptor 50 and Forbes Cloud 100. Craig also runs the Next Level Leader podcast where he highlights ordinary people doing extraordinary things to help others live on the next level. Craig also runs the Next Level Leader podcast where he highlights ordinary people doing extraordinary things to help others live on the next level. Without further ado, our episode with Craig Pratt. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. I'm excited to be here. Great. You know, just so everyone can understand what you're up to right now would be helpful to understand a little bit more about what you're focused on right now, after ServiceNow, and kind of what you're doing. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, after 25 years in high tech and a fantastic uh, run working with some amazing people, what I realized was I was the benefactor of working for smart entrepreneurs and smart founders. So when I established Next Level Leader, it was in the spirit of helping founders get their companies off the ground. So I tend to work with most early stage companies, you know, sub 20 and $10 million, really try to, how, how to figure out how to scale their business, right? And uh, you know, the, the question I always lead with when working with clients, and I'll share one of my five secrets is, asking my clients in the beginning of our relationship with their business, what's your unfair advantage? And then basically helping them double down on that. Yeah. And it, it's amazing how many don't actually you know, know how to answer that, right. Or have never been asked that, right. And never thought about what does it mean to have an unfair advantage? So I always, I always use the example of Floyd May, uh, Mayweather, one of the great, you know, prize fighters, uh, maybe the best in his class, you know, his unfair advantage was he was an incredible defensive fighter. Right. So every time he walked into the ring, his opponent knew he was best in class as a defensive fighter. So he automatically had unfair advantage physically and then mentally he was in their head. Great. So we'll kind of dive in here. You know, I'm excited to talk to you about some of the deals that really, um, you know, made your career, put you on the map that you really feel were super influential. And, you know, I know that you mentioned before that you wanted to start with a loss that you had earlier in your career and talk a little bit about what that taught you and kind of how that influenced the rest of your career. And so before you dive into the details, I think it would be helpful if you set the scene, you know, when it was, where you were working and just kind of what you were doing, what they were focused on, how this really played into your career. Yeah. Um, so the, the short story was upon graduating from college, I really didn't have a, what I would call a 
a traditional job lined up, but I had gotten pretty good at golf again and, uh, had a couple of friends in the golf business and decided to go that route and end up working at a fantastic club called Orchard Lake Country Club in Detroit, Michigan. This was in 1994. And in that year, um, I spent a ton of time with a bunch of our members and, and five of the members all talked to me about, you know, life after the golf business, right? Come work for us potentially. And the one I was lucky enough to land was the opportunity to copyware. And that was a large mainframe, a software company in the mid nineties. So they brought me in as part of their, uh, BDR, ADR, SDR type program. And typically that was a two year tour of duty that you were in for some reason. They kicked me out of the program and out into the field in less than a year. And, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for two people for that. A Jim Leffel for giving me the opportunity to go into the file aid product line, Bob Trojan, uh, for giving me the opportunity in Minneapolis to come join his team and move from Detroit and cover Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. And then even before that, Jack Chavillo and Pete Carmont for giving me the opportunity to go to CompuWare, Pete being one of the founders and Jack being one of the SVPs. So they shipped me to Minneapolis in a full-time role, November 7th, 1995. And I was in, uh, affectionately known as the, the Tundra. And so I was covering Iowa, Nebraska and Kansas and 47 mainframe accounts in a patch that in the previous 12 months to what I would call tenure and experienced software sales reps said there was no business. So they both spent six months in the territory and said there was no business. But Craig was undeterred by the challenge and was determined to succeed where others could not. I'll never forget. So it was kind of my first real opportunity. And we were actually starting behind the eight ball. So it's Farm Bureau of Iowa. This is 19 in the fall of 95, you know, into early 96. And there was a little company, niche company out there in the DB2 database market space for mainframe called Princeton Soft Tech. They created that market. And so I entered that opportunity, you know, playing defense, even though they were a file ABB2 uh, customer. And, you know, it's, it's not often when you start your career 0 and 1, but that's what I had the pleasure of doing. Um, kudos to the Princeton SoftTech team. Uh, they, they mopped me up in that account, but that loss taught me some in, invaluable lessons, right? You know, about competition, about coaches, about champions, about position or be positioned, um, you know, how to compete against best in class niche providers. And so I remember spending a full weekend back in Minneapolis, you know, just, you know, reviewing my sales plays, you know, how to compete against them, where to compete against them, you know, how to set the stage, what their strengths were, what our strengths were, what their weaknesses weaknesses were. And so that type of preparation stayed with me the rest of my career. So I'm very grateful for, you know, starting my career 0 and 1. It was an uphill battle because I knew the workout I was going to get with the client was going to make me better in future campaigns, not just against Princeton Soft Tech, but in any other competitive battle. So there's always something you can learn from a loss individually and as a team. And that you took a lot from. But uh, I guess fast forwarding, you know, that was really your first experience, 0 and 1. Clearly, yeah, you gained a couple wins along the way, that company and others. But you know, I think it would be really great to talk about really one of those wins that you remember. Yeah, let's, uh, you know, I started as an individual contributor. And then, you know, from that, I, I 
moved into some early leadership roles. Uh, I always tell people, you know, I was, I was the world's worst first time sales manager. So I always tell everybody I was in the hall of fame all by myself. And I've been lucky to be on a lot of teams that have won some pretty cool, you know, deals, but one I will give you that's on high on the list is, uh, when I was, you know, at the storage company and we were taking on the cartel. So when you think of names back in the mid two thousands, you're thinking of companies like Cisco, Oracle, EMC, Dell, Microsoft, IBM, HP, right? So when you're competing against them, you know, you have to have your A game. We had a really advanced piece of technology for the client, um, actually created the category in and around backup deduplication. And in classic cartel fashion, uh, they've got the executive relationships, right? But we've got the technical champion, right? And we've got, you know, the folks in the trenches who are going to have to administer the platform, do the work, you know. They're going to have to bet their job and their reputation on a decision for something other than the cartel. And so you're competing against what we affectionately all call free. Well, you can get a free elephant, but we know what happens when you get a free elephant. And that background in leading the team against the so-called cartel set up another seminal Fortune 100 win for Craig and his teams. Here he is talking about one of his most memorable deals. There is no easy win. And there's no easy loss, right? But they're, they're different for different reasons. And so this was a great example of a, a fortune 100 company and, um, they had a large project, you know, they were going through to consolidate some of their infrastructure and they were looking for a strategic platform provider. And, uh, we had run a very successful campaign for, you know, rough and tough 12 months. And in fact, you know, we had infrastructure in the environment. So you could argue as a home game, but little did we know something called nine 11 would come along, you know, God bless everybody affected by that. And that kind of reset the market in that fall when this, the decision was being made for us. Right. And so every company was affected in some way, shape or form by nine 11 because the economy halted for a period of time. You got a, uh, a seven figure proposal in front of the client that's very strategic, but yet somebody, even though you beat them at every level in the technology, you know, stack, they still have executive level relationships and, and they're willing to do a favor for the client. Right. And when you're talking about a seven figure favor, that's a big favor. You just can't overlook that. Right. And if, if you're the client, you go, well, maybe we even try it, you know, worst case. You know, it didn't cost us anything, but again, that's where you start to uncover the value for the client and the risk and the resources. And you really put the mirror back up in front of the client and say, Hey, yeah, there's a reason it's free. And it wasn't free three months ago. Wasn't free six months ago. Right. It's free because they lost. And so those are, those are great wins as well. But you know, those are must win deals for a company of our size at the time. Right. Because that's not a rounding error. If you're a district manager or a sales rep, that makes your year, that makes your quarter, that makes your half year, um, for this other company, nobody knows if they won it or didn't win it. Right. Uh, it's immaterial. And what, I guess out of curiosity, what made that one so memorable? Well, it's, it's your classic complex sale, right? So when you're talking about a fortune 100, 
you know, there's, there's levels of individuals who, you know, either think they're responsible, accountable, need to be consulted, or at least informed, right. And, and they all want to touch the decision in some way, shape or form. So, you know, I think about that, you know, much like Hatfields and McCoys, who's with you, who's against you, you know, who do we have to get to that, that maybe doesn't know us right to eliminate the risk. Uh, it wasn't just a standard. A single buyer, a single persona, right? A, a single, because this was an enterprise decision that they were going to live with now for the next 36 months is their strategic, you know, platform. So if, if we lose, we're on the outside looking in for three years. I was lucky to be on the team that was winning in league team that was competing for that opportunity. Uh, I think about the incredible work we did with and for the client that was material winning some awards, you know, for the following year from that project because you know, that they recognize the value that you created with Inform, the relationships that were built, you know, with some of those executives who either stayed at that account or went on to do other things that are still friends of mine, you know, 20 plus years later, because uh, it is a people business at the end of the day. Right. And, uh, so when you get together for, you know, pop, you know, a couple of times a year and you walk down memory lane, you know, that's always a fun one to dust off and talk about. Of course. And it's, uh, I mean, it's fascinating. You mentioned it's this kind of really complex multi-stakeholder sale that took a lot of people to get convinced. Is there anything kind of particular that you think others could learn from that? It was, it was about 2008 when I started to look back on my career and kind of the 14 years in high tech sales and kind of review every opportunity that I was, you know, in good or bad, right? Um, you don't bat a thousand. Uh, but luckily for me, I was always with great companies and I was on, you know, the winning side of the ball more than I was on the losing side. But this started to inform me in kind of a process that I built for my clients that we use today. And it actually came to life in 2009 at EMC BRS called Validate the Value, which became a, a staple at EMC in the, in the backup and recovery systems, uh, division. I mean, they were doing 1600 of these a quarter. And the original to validate the value exercises, the first one was done at Life Touch here in Minneapolis, which is ultimately acquired by, uh, I think, Shutterfly. And then uh, the other one was RGA in St. Louis. And the whole premise there was what I call vision to value. So client has a vision, you know, of where they want to go from their current state and the gaps that exist in their current state that are holding them back, right? holding them back to fulfill business requirements, solve business issues uh, for the enterprise. And so they capture that current state. They start to draw out the after state of where all the value is created. And then from there, they go research the market, right? Who can help us get to that after state? But what doesn't happen is if you made the decision for us, how do I come back and prove to you 90 or 180 days that that was the right decision? How do I validate our value in our partnership and then validate our value against your vision? And so short story is companies that take that vision to value approach and then validate their value tend to take share faster, expand share faster and protect share against their competitors. And so, you know, I think about that today when I look back on all those pursuits. And then I think about that for companies today or my clients today, or even, you know, companies I don't work with in, in my peer group of sellers, 
Um, how do they apply that approach? And I think, you know, it's very relevant for this time, honestly, because what you're talking about, which is how do we actually show that what we're doing matters after the fact, right? It's one thing to customer. And of course, we all know how much effort is. And by the time you put all that effort in, I think a lot of people are just kind of like, great, we did it, wiping our hands here and let's turn it over to. And, you know, right now in this market, which is tougher than some for it, suddenly people are looking at that value and looking to understand that they made the right decision. Companies aren't necessarily prepared to really, um, you know, put that out on the table and help them understand what is this success going to look like three, four months in. It's pretty uncommon, I would say. And so the fact that you were doing it at that point with that level of sale is really interesting. To me. There's probably a lot to be gleaned from. Well, and you think about big tech projects, you know, how many times the person you sold to is, is no longer associated with that project or that decision. Um, 12 months or 18 months or 24 months later, they got promoted. They moved on to a new project. They, they left the company, went to a new company, right? And so somebody's picking up the pieces of this project, trying to understand, how do we make this decision? How do we get here? You know, is it delivering the value of what we expected it to deliver? And if you don't codify that on the front end with and for the client, creates more work for the client that ultimately creates more work for you as a, as a company, as a sales team. The ways that you go about getting those things internally, you know, after the fact to help others leverage a lot of what went on there. You know, I know storytelling is such a big part of it. And of course, now with some of the leaders you've had, they're really passionate. Respectfully, it's easy to publish the wins. It's tough to publish the losses, right? Because nobody wants to go into their CRM and say, close, lost, right? If you're a sales rep, no decision or deferred, right? They don't want to say close lot, right? And so I think you got to be intellectually honest about your wins and your losses. And what I'll tell you, the, the companies that do the best at scaling, do the best at pattern matching, right? Why do we continue to win? Is it in the segment we're in, the who we're competing against, getting to the right persona, demoing things that they care about? Like, what are those patterns that we can repeat? that actually make it easier for our sales teams to scale, right? So you don't treat every pursuit like a science project. And so mining that information is really important and taking the time to train against that information is really important, uh, which I don't think a lot of companies really do that, you know, to the extent they could and should. So I think it would really accelerate the development of their sales teams. And then. You know, just with the kind of challenging economic times you mentioned and, and the general evolution of the market, what do you think a lot of leaders and builders and sellers have maybe lost perspective of that they should be reminded of? Or, you know, is there anything you think people are missing right now, whether it's something that's motivated or inspired you over the years, or just something that everyone needs to keep as they kind of build their company careers? Well, I, I, I say it all the time, you know, life's a team sport. And when I was 24 and I got the opportunity to go into high tech, I really didn't have a vision for what my team would look like 25 years from now, right? And who would be on that team and, and, and why they were so important, you know, as part of my success, right? When you look back and you talk about 
you know, the Chicago, the Bulls, you know, from my era, you can't say Michael Jordan without seeing Scotty Pippen. You can't say, you know, magic without Kareem, right? From a Lakers perspective. Uh, you can't say Mikhail without Bird without seeing Mikhail or vice versa if you're a Celtics fan, right? And so think about whose team you want to be on and who you want on your team and who's missing from that team and, and who on that team you can't afford to lose, you know, on a personal level and on a professional level. Because great teammates make the difference in the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, that's, you know, I think people are maybe realizing that more and more in other opportunities. But I think the point you're making here is, at the end of the day, it's kind of long-term relationships, being on a winning teams, it's going to develop a whole lot, whole lot faster than potentially a short-term pay bump in one place. But I, I pull up LinkedIn, uh, you know, peruse a few things. I'm not thinking about the deals I won. I'm thinking about all the incredible people that shaped me, hired me, fired me, you know, promoted me, demoted me, you know, coached me, shaped me. Um, you name it. And I guess it's actually, Craig, one thing that I, I do want to ask that to that realm, you thanked a lot of people who really took a bet on you early on in your career. I'm in the copyware days. Is there anyone else, you know, that you really admire? Anyone you want to shout out that you had a really major impact? You could shout out one or, one or two folks in general. Well, you know, so every year, starting in 2009, um, in that year, it was my 15th year in technology. So I wrote a letter to the that was a great exercise in doing that. And so I said, I'll do that again in 2014, five years later, and I'll recognize, you know, kind of the top 20 people that I think have had an impact on my life. And then I got to that point. I said, I don't know why I'm waiting five years to do it. Let's just do it every year. And so I started writing that letter every year and said, just recently, um, I sent out all my letters in mid to late January, early February for 2022. And there were 30 people on that list that had a profound. So if it's my wife, Carrie, um, it's my mom and dad. And, and I said in my LinkedIn post. There's four people that, that um, make a difference in your life. Those who give you life, hence my parents. Those who maybe save your life. Those who you share a life with. And um, got on biking on my fourth, it's old age. But when you put it in that context, right, it really... It really helps you think about, you know, the path and the journey you're on. Now you're asking me to, you know, pull a few people out. Um, listen, they all know they're incredibly special and they get their letter and if they get to listen to this, right, they know they're on that list. But if, if I had to pick, you know, outside of the ones that I already mentioned, right, uh, there's four I would pick. One is uh, Alan J. McMillan. Uh, <laughs> God bless AJ. He convinced me to, to go to data domain when I went to go tell him I wasn't going to accept the job, which then 
created the opportunity for me to go work with uh, two of the best in the business, um, two dear friends on, on multiple levels, Dave Schneider and Kevin Haverty at Data Domain, which then parlayed into uh, um, ServiceNow. I think we kind of know how that, that journey ended up or is, continues to unfold. And then, you know, the fourth, it'd be tough to argue against this, but I mean, he's a legend in the industry and, and you look at, uh, the three, the three rings, you could say he's, he's worn, uh, the data domain ring, the service now ring, and now most recently the snowflake ring, Frank Slootman. And the funny thing about that is I first met Frank in 1994 because Frank worked at CompuWare. He was the GM of the Uniface line of business and I was on the mainframe side, so I wasn't in his space, but to think that. That was my first connection with Frank and then to get a work for him in, in 2008 and then go have the opportunity to work with him and for him again in 2011 at, at, at ServiceNow. Um, yeah, there's a few right there. I love it. I love it. That's, well, you know, really appreciate the time, Craig. This was amazing to hear some of, some of your deal stories and really appreciate it. Awesome. Michael, thank you. You're doing great work. Keep it up. The, the, uh, the community is going to benefit from your efforts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Windwire with Craig Pratt. If you enjoyed it, we'd be grateful if you could rate us and leave us a review on your chosen podcast platform. Your feedback helps us see what you like and allows us to reach more listeners, bringing these conversations to a broader audience. Feel free to reach out to us at our show email, windwirepodcast at gmail.com with your feedback, suggestions, or any requests for future guests. To delve into more captivating stories like Craig's, don't forget to check out our previous episodes at thewindwire.com or on your preferred podcast player. And subscribe to ensure you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Until next time, I'm Michael Katz, and you've been listening to The Windwire.